0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Hey, everybody, this is David Guzik. So glad you could join me today. I am live from the United Kingdom, actually. I am here for a few days visiting my daughter and having a very nice time with her. And I thought, well, she has an internet connection, of course, and I have my stuff, so maybe I could go ahead and do a live question and answer today. It is Thursday, 12 o'clock noon Pacific time. Of course, here in the UK, it's dark outside. It's eight o'clock at night. But I hope that you can join me, no matter where you are, and we can answer some questions. The normal pattern that we have today on one of these weekly live Q&As is uh, I begin with sort of an opening question, and then I respond to the questions that you have, uh, that you submit by writing into the chat bar, and we all have a time together. So I hope you can join me. I hope you can ask a question or leave a comment, and I'll respond to them the best I can. I don't claim to have the answers to everything, but I love talking about the Bible. I love talking about the Christian life. And it's sort of an adventure for me to do it in a different place here. So um, I'm going to begin with an opening question that uh, I really came in from somebody. And uh, I just want to get to that opening question, looking at my notes here. And the opening question comes from TNC, Emerson for TNC, let's just say that, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, they sent in. Uh, This is what they wrote. They said, a question for the future stream I never catch it live because of my time zone. Why is it that some Christians are very much against the celebration of birthdays, even calling it outright sinful? Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 says that the sun and the moon were created for days and years, which seems to me like counting days and 365 days would be a year, thus a birthday. Uh, the only argument I've heard, and I'm still reading their question, the only argument I've heard is about the lack of birthdays celebrated in the Bible and the historical claims to paganism, though I haven't seen a good source. Um, They also point out that it's unfortunately difficult for them to check out on this because of the Jehovah's Witness influence here. Um, I don't know if you know, but the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society based in Brooklyn, New York, commonly called Jehovah's Witnesses, sort of as a policy that they have as a sect is that they do not allow their members to celebrate birthdays. So it's sort of a valid question for us to ask, just to say, what's the the deal? What are we doing? Should we be celebrating birthdays as Christians or not? And this is just kind of the question I want to get at and make it clear to you with, is that I, I want to emphasize, we have perfect liberty in Jesus Christ to either observe the birthday or to not observe the birthday as we may feel the Lord would lead us. This is the great thing about being a Christian, is that we have the areas where the Bible speaks to us. And the Bible speaks to us about so many things. It speaks to us, of course, about a basic morality, lying, stealing, murder, violence. It speaks to us about sexual morality. It speaks to us about social things. It speaks about so many things. But let's not forget, there are so many things that the Bible just doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't talk about the celebration of birthdays. And so, therefore, I would simply regard it that this is an area of liberty for Christians to either pursue or not pursue as they may feel that they should or shouldn't. And I just think that the Holy Spirit speaks to us either through sort of a direct speaking of the Holy Spirit, though no one, uh, since the apostles can hear the Holy Spirit perfectly, Yeah, I I think there are times when we can hear the Holy Spirit sufficiently to gain some guidance for our life. Uh, There's that aspect of the Holy Spirit speaking to somebody, or just speaking through conscience, saying, I'm free to celebrate birthdays, or I shouldn't celebrate birthdays. Now, there have been, throughout the history of Christianity, certain Christians who just felt that they shouldn't uh, commemorate certain holidays, And sometimes those holidays that they feel that they should not commemorate come down to all kinds of things. Um, They uh, talk about things like uh, Christmas, for example. There have been some very committed Christians through the centuries who have said that it's not the business of Christians to celebrate Christmas. It's not in the Bible, because let's face it, a Christmas celebration is not strictly speaking within the Bible, the birth of Jesus is in the Bible, but celebrating it, on a specific day, especially celebrating on December 25th, that's not commemorated in the Bible. Um, so, you know, we can talk about that. Now, uh, for example, from my understanding, and I'm getting this from secondary sources, but from my understanding, uh, the early pilgrims who came and settled in the colonies that became the United States uh, in the, what was it, the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, these were people who believed you shouldn't celebrate Christmas. And there's been other people like them who felt like, well, we just should know. As a believer, you have freedom in Christ to celebrate Christmas or to not celebrate Christmas. You have freedom in Christ to commemorate birthdays for you and your family and friends or to not commemorate birthdays. Let let me read to you the verse from Colossians chapter 2 that I think expresses it the best. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16, says this. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, of course, this doesn't apply strictly in the sense of the worship of angels, but but simply, there are people who take what I would regard to be a false humility, sometimes even a self-righteousness, because they abstain from things that the Bible says we are free to partake or abstain from. I I guess I would put it this way. If you are a believer, moved upon either by the Holy Spirit individually for your life or by your own conscience, and you say, I should not celebrate birthdays, then listen. Uh, Fine, then don't do it. But don't think that that makes you any more right with God. The basis of our rightness with God is not on whether or not we celebrate Christmas or birthdays or other such things. The basis of our rightness with God Is on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you do celebrate birthdays, don't think that you're more right with God than somebody who doesn't. You have the freedom in Christ either to do it or to not do it as the Holy Spirit may lead you. So um, I think this is really important just for have a track of that. There are many things in the Christian life where we have genuine liberty and While we allow the Holy Spirit to move upon us or to speak to individual conscience, what we do not do is we do not regard it as something that um, uh, makes us more or less right with God. The ground of our righteousness is the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So that's what I would say. You want to celebrate birthday? Do it. If you're getting a little bit older like me and uh, birthdays aren't as exciting to you as they once were, then you're free not to celebrate birthdays. But just don't think that it makes you any more right with God. All right. Thank you for that question there, uh, T and C. And I'm going to get on now and uh, answer some of the questions that are here in our sidebar here. So um, Joanne says, how wonderful. Yes, it is wonderful to be here with my daughter. I'm enjoying it very much. I think she's off camera deliberately, and that's fine. There's no pressure for her to come on camera. Um, Anthony asks, "Uh, Pastor, did you get my question about Genesis? Yes, Anthony, I did get your question about Genesis. Um, Here's Anthony's questions about Genesis. I'm going to read it here from my tablet. He says, in Genesis chapter 5, it speaks of Adam's genealogy. My question is most Adam's descendants don't have children until they were in their hundreds. My question is, did they have a longer adolescence, or am I just missing something? Well, Anthony, what you bring up here deals with something that is frankly challenging in the biblical record. And what's challenging is Genesis chapter 5 and a few other places in Genesis describe extremely long lifespans that certain individuals had, and perhaps all individuals had, before the flood. For example, we read of Seth in uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Okay, so what we have here is we have two difficulties that Anthony's pointing to. The first difficulty is brought up in verse 8, where it says, the days of Seth were 912 years. Now, there are many people who read this, and they just say, well, that's obviously not historical. It's speaking in a symbolic way. It's speaking uh, just to give some poetic exaggeration. It must be counting things in a completely different way, and so forth and so on. Uh, that that's the opinion of many people. I, I would say, I, I would rather look for ways and ways to understand that, that it is just a very straightforward thing. And that actually Seth did live 912 years. And how would we know that? Or how could that be? Well, the most common explanation given, and again, you can take this explanation, of what is worth, there's dispute among Christians about this, but the most common explanation given is that, first of all. The ecology of the earth was radically different before the flood, and this contributed to massively uh, increased lifespans for people, because what we find is after the flood, lifespans very dramatically are reduced to what we are familiar with today. And so they were something in the ecology. There was something in the atmosphere. There was something in just the nature of the earth at that time that contributed to extremely long lifestyles. I think that that is perhaps uh, a suggested solution. I think an additional one that may be in addition to that first one is, it may very well be, that because in the nature of humanity, this was much closer to the original source of the perfect man and perfect woman, Adam and Eve, that there was just that much less corruption in the genetic pool of humanity, and that led to a longer lifespan. And it could have been a third thing, and of course, many more. I'm just going to mention these three. Different ecology, better genetics. And the third suggestion is this was just a blessing of God to enable humanity to uh, rapidly multiply across the face of the earth. Listen, if you are living 912 years, and if you are able to father children for 700 of those years, you could have a lot of children. And you could make the earth multiply in its generations in a radically fast way. Now, I can't say for certain that any one of those things, but to me, any one or a combination of those three seem plausible. Okay, now, if we take the long lifespan, then we're left with the problem that, Anthony, you mentioned. And the problem is this. Why is it that Seth did not seem to have a child until 105 years? Again, I'm going to give two suggestions for this. One of them is the suggestion that you yourself made, Anthony. Maybe it was the case that corresponding, with the much longer lifespans. Uh, they had a much longer adolescence or what we would probably technically call a pre-adolescence before they could father or mother children. That's a possibility. But I'm going to suggest another possibility here. We know that these patriarchs, these people listed in the Genesis genealogies, had many other sons and daughters other than those who, that are mentioned in the biblical record. Matter of fact, the verses that I read to you about Seth are emblematic of that, because it says here in verse 7, after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. Now, I don't think if we necessarily say that the and sons and daughters had to come after he had Enosh, uh, that could just be referring to the 800 years that came after Enosh the bottom line is this, it's possible that the biblical record is only telling us about the son that was chosen to carry on the family line. Uh, Let's face it, if it were possible for somebody in those days to have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 children, maybe 30, 40 sons, one of them. Now, normally in those cultures, it would be the eldest, but not necessarily. What I'm just saying is that there's a possibility that the son that they refer to there isn't necessarily the firstborn son that's mentioned. So those are possibilities. After all, remember, we, we, we do say that perhaps it's a normal pattern in those ancient cultures for the firstborn son to be chosen to carry on, but not all the time. For example, it was not Adam and Eve's firstborn son that carried on the line. It was their third-born son. It wasn't the first, Cain. It wasn't the second, Abel. It was the third whose name was Seth. So uh, that pattern, the first one, isn't always held. So I would say it's one or both of those things, either the prolonged pre-adolescence or uh, the sons that are mentioned being born at a particular age were not the firstborn necessarily. Okay, let me continue on here. Other questions here. Uh, Lupe asks, Christians get divorced without any adultery. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, Lupe, you don't really ask a question there. I I would reference you to a long video that I did that's on this YouTube channel about divorce and remarriage. Uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, I think is what we titled the video. But you're absolutely right. If a divorce doesn't happen upon biblical grounds, it may very well be a sin in God's eyes. These are things that need wise pastoral counsel. Uh, You need somebody to get into the, 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 the depths of the problem to understand what was going on, not only in the actions of people, but also in the hearts of people to really come to an understanding if somebody does a commit a divorce that would be against God's will against God's command again we don't want to jump to the conclusion and say every divorce is against God's command because God definitely gives the permission for divorce even though in Malachi he clearly says that he hates it yet in both Deuteronomy and Jesus repeats it in Matthew saying that God allows it in certain situations outside those certain situations, it's much more likely that a particular divorce is a sin. It needs wise pastoral analysis and counsel at the individual level. I can't speak, you know, with a, with a broad thing about every this or every that in those kind of situations. But here's the point I want to make. It's very important to realize that if somebody has divorced out of God's will, and even if they've been remarried out of God's will, because the first divorce was out of God's will, they can repent and get it right with God right where they are at. That's kind of the message of that video that I recommend to you. So thank you for that, Lupi. Let me keep going on. Andrea asks the question. Uh, let me see here. Andrea asks a question. Hi, David. At one point, did the birthright tra- transfer from Esau to Jacob uh, when Esau sold it to his brother when Isaac spoke a blessing on Jacob? All right, Andre, that's a good question. What you're referring to is the situation in the book of Genesis where before these twin sons were born and the twin sons were Jacob and Esau, before they were born, uh, God commanded, he Spoke ahead of time. You could say prophesied, but it's not prophecy when God speaks it. It's prophecy when man speaks what God has spoken. But God announced that it would be the younger who took the birthright, not the older. As I mentioned before, it would be the custom. So it would be Jacob that would receive the birthright. For some reason, Isaac, the father of these twins, uh, wanted to put the blessing, the birthright, upon Esau instead. And Jake, excuse me, Esau sort of having the birthright just by being the firstborn, despised it and gave it, so to speak, to Jacob. Andrea, let me just answer the question. I don't think the birthright came to Jacob when Isaac pronounced him blessed. I don't think the birthright came to Jacob when Esau uh, sold it to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. The birthright came to Jacob before he was even born. God put the birthright upon Jacob. And man can do whatever he wants. You you know, uh, Esau can despise his birthright as the firstborn, but that's not determinative. Um, Rebecca can do her scheming behind the scenes. Isaac can say, I want to give it to Esau and not to Jacob, even though I know God wanted it to be for Jacob. Humanity can do what they want, But God's plan as it unfolds throughout the ages will never be defeated. And before those boys were ever born, God ordained that Jacob would have it. So that's when he received the birthright, before he was even born. I hope that helps you there. Uh, Anthony. Okay, Anthony, I already dealt with your question. Thanks for um, stating it again. Joanne says, uh, I want to thank you for your speaking to how what we do, pray, or write as valid means to be a witness for Christ. Even though I get messages of appreciation or admired faith, I wonder if I fell short. Well, I just want to re- remind you, Joanne, that I do think it is important and necessary for us to speak to people about um, the gospel and about the things of God. It's important to speak to people about God. After all, that's sort of my calling. That's, that's what I'm doing right now over here. I Believe me, I, I'm not doing... This uh, YouTube live video so that God will tune in, even though I know He's watching and listening to everything I'm doing. uh, I don't need to do a YouTube video so that God will tune in. He's tuned on me all the time. I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for anybody who views this or listens to this. So it is important for us to talk to people about God, but it is even more important for us to talk to God about people we must believe that we can get more accomplished through prayer than we even can getting accomplished through what we say or do. Now, fortunately, no one emphasizes we don't have to choose between the two. There may be rare circumstances in our life. I do think of the circumstances in Moses' life, where God told him to stop praying and start moving the people of Israel across the dry ground of the Red Sea that just parted. So there's a time to stop praying and get working. But prayer is, for the most part, the most effective work that we can do, even in evangelism. So, yes, talk to people about God. But in prayer, talk to God about people. All right, Lee says, In studying John's gospel, as well as 1 John, I see that some commentators cast doubt on the apostle John being the author. Do you agree that John is the author? Okay, Lee, yes, I do agree that John is the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation. Now, I understand just as you do that that is not accepted by every uh, Bible commentator or researcher. There is a variety of opinion on this. But as I have read the arguments for it being somebody else than the one that the church has understood it to be from almost earliest times of the church, I mean, very, very early in church history, this was regarded to be the work of John, uh, one of the sons of thunder, John, one of the 12 who followed Jesus, John, the one who was at the cross and to whom Mary's care was entrusted. That John um, it has been understood, that's one. I have not seen compelling evidence to believe otherwise, and therefore I'm going to stick with sort of the historical and traditional understanding of that. Um, So yes, I I do think that John, the one that we normally understand is the one who wrote all, I guess it's five, four, five of those books. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation. I had to do a little bit of counting right there. Okay, Agnes writes... Hi, Pastor David. Um, Why do you think God called David a man after his own heart and that he always does what God wants when you know that David messed up as a husband and a father? Okay. Agnes, that's a good question here. And um, here's, I, I can't quote you the chapter and verse where God called David a man after his heart, but here's what I would want you to understand from that is I I believe, and again, if I'm wrong, I'll just be corrected on that. God did call David a man after his heart who does his will uh, before, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember now where it was that it was specifically that it was said after that. So, uh, okay, I'm not even gonna follow that first path of of saying that he said it before David, because I don't wanna make that point anyway. I, I just wanna show you that it shows you that somebody who truly is a man or a woman after God's own heart, that it is possible for them to fall into a season of uh, what we might call backsliding or, or lukewarmness. It is possible for them to uh, commit sin and, and spend a season in sin. Because let's remember, David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband wasn't just an occasion that happened in a brief period of time, you know, a week or 10 days or whatever it was. David held on to that sin and refused to confess it for a whole year. So, uh, this, um, this is, is a heavy thing, and it shows us that when God is looking for a man or woman who is after his heart, who does his will, God isn't looking necessarily at that person's worst moments. Yeah, I I got a question for every one of our viewers or listeners to this. And it's a question I, I know how I would answer for myself. Would you want to be judged on your worst moments? I wouldn't. Never. Now, our worst moments are part of who we are. We shouldn't deny that they are. And they're things to repent of and things to bring before God and things to really see God work on in our lives. No doubt about that. But our worst moments do not define the totality of who we are. And the totality of who we are is defined in God's greater picture. And what it was that David had in his honest, true, trusting heart before God was a heart that could get knocked down and knock himself down through his own sin and compromise and still get up and genuinely walk with the Lord. If you want examples of this, Read through the Psalms and the many Psalms that are attributed to David. There you see how a man who even sins, and sometimes sins for a season, a man or woman who does so can still be a man or woman after God's heart. Great question there, Agnes. Okay, Adolphi asked the question, thanks for your well-rounded approach to topics. I applaud you for that do you ever get negative feedback because you quote Calvin in your commentary? Uh, listen, I, I suppose I do. I, from time to time I've had somebody read a quote that I give from a particular, uh, commentator or author who is reformed, who is if anybody's reformed, it's John Calvin, whom I quote from time to time. It's, uh, Martin Luther, of course, who I quote from time to time. Um, Charles Spurgeon was definitely Reformed or Calvinistic in his theology. I quote him a lot. James Montgomery Boyce is someone who was Reformed or Calvinistic, and I quote him uh, from time to time. And there are people who read me uh, quoting such people, and they just sort of automatically assume that I must be Calvinist or Reformed. And I would say, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not going to get into the specific things where I would disagree with Reformed or Calvinistic theology in that regard, but I would say this. Number one, though I am not Reformed or Calvinistic, I don't consider myself to be anti-Calvinistic or Reformed in this. Even though there are definitely places where I would disagree with their theology, I appreciate that there has been much good that many Reformed authors and commentators, or Calvinistic authors and commentators, have contributed to the Christian world. Uh, they've contributed to me. I've gained a lot of benefit from them without having to buy into every aspect of their theological plan. So I don't consider myself an anti Calvinist. I think that I can appreciate the good things that I get to them and, and just sort of sort out and understand more than anything the particular areas where I would disagree with them. Um, But uh, let me say one more thing about John Calvin. The fascinating thing to me about John Calvin, and something that makes me respect him more. Now, I, I think Calvin is a complicated figure, both theologically and historically. There's some things that are very good about him. There's other things that I think are valid to talk about or to question about Calvin. But whatever you want to talk about in those things, let me say this. Calvin was a man taught verse by verse through books of the Bible, and he did it for decades. Calvin's commentaries, which are a huge set of books that I have. I think I may use it on digital form or in more recent translations. But the collection of Calvin's commentaries are basically the transcripts of his verse by verse teachings through almost every book of the Bible. So if for nothing else, and I think there is more that John Calvin deserves credit, but then probably blame for a few things. But John Calvin deserves some credit as a man who taught verse by verse through books of the Bible. There are definitely places in his theology that can and should be questioned and talked about, but but there are many places where he has good insight into the biblical text, and that's why I quote him. Good question there, Adolphi. Uh, Jennifer says... Was Jacob healed from the hip injury which he received during the wrestling match with the Lord, or was he afflicted with it until he died? Jennifer, he was afflicted with it until he died. In the late chapters of Genesis, when uh, Jacob was blessing his 12 sons, actually his 11 sons and the two sons of Joseph, that's kind of complicated, he blessed them Leaning upon his staff, and that sort of uh, indicates that he was still afflicted by that crippling, uh, even in his advanced years. So he he walked with that limp for the rest of his life. Good question there. Uh, Matthew says, "Hi, Pastor David. God bless you. Bless you, Matthew. Glad you could tune in today." Uh, Lupe asks again. I couldn't ask the whole question because I had too many characters. Um, Maybe people get divorced just because they can repent or because they can just repent. Okay, Lupe, now that's a great question there. What Lupe is talking about is a situation where somebody does something like this. Well, I know it's not a godly divorce. I know I have no biblical grounds, but um, whatever, God will forgive me. I'll just sin and I'll ask for forgiveness later. Lupe, I would just say. That, that is a serious failing of the condition of heart of such a person. And that person has reason to examine their soul to see whether or not they are really in the faith. Now, let, let me rephrase that, because I want to be very clear on what I've said. I'm not saying that automatically that person is not a Christian. No, I—listen— God and that person know that for sure. I don't. But I would say that such a cavalier attitude, such uh, um, in regard to a serious sin, something like, now again, I'm not equating divorce and murder, so I'm using sort of an extreme analogy here, but to use an extreme analogy, it would be like somebody saying, well, I can murder this person and then ask forgiveness from God later. Again, Somebody who would do that, knowingly commit a serious sin, saying, I can just ask God, that betrays something wrong in the heart. And it may be, I didn't say it's positive, but I said it may be that that person is not in the faith at all, and maybe has had something of a false conversion or whatever it is, they need to get right with God. So that is a serious warning sign. And I don't know if anybody listening to this or watching this video would find themselves in that place where you would deliberately start thinking out in your heart, okay, I know this is sin. And and, and you just say, it's a serious sin. I know this is a big sin. This is one of these life-altering sins, either my life or the lives of others. This is a big deal. And you know what? I know it's sin, but I can just ask forgiveness later. Whoa, stop. If you're seriously contemplating that course of action, stop. And and I pray that you would act like the new man or the new woman in Christ that you think yourself to be. Live according to the new person that God has made you. So yeah, Lupe, that, that possibility lies with just about any command God makes. Somebody could murder or steal or rape or uh, kidnap or whatever it would be. Whatever terrible thing you could think of, anybody can commit any sin under that rationale. But if somebody does, it's a warning sign that there's something very wrong in their walk with God. Okay, I hope that answers it there for you. Uh, Matthew says, I have some questions. Been studying Galatians. Is it safe to say that Paul got the revelation from Jesus directly, like basically to spend three years on -on one-on-one like the disciples did? Um, Matthew, yes. In Galatians, and I'm not going to read the chapter and verse you here, but part of Paul's um, line of explanation in Galatians chapter one and two is that he did not receive his gospel from the apostles. He received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And so it was a direct revelation from Jesus unto Paul. Now, which you must say, Jesus used people in bringing Paul into the kingdom. I think of the man Annas, the disciple who was in Damascus. But Paul would say, Annas didn't preach the gospel to me. Annas sort of was like the midwife at the birth. God performed the birth. So uh, it's important to say Paul insists that he did not get his gospel. From he would be something like some of these unusual occasions that we hear of today of uh, Jesus just sort of revealing himself to people and people coming to a true biblical knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, w- without it having preached to them by another person. These conversions happen today. And so uh, they may not be the pattern, they may not be the norm. The Bible tells us what the norm is. It's that for people to hear a preacher and to have the gospel proclaimed to them by somebody else. But there are at least some occasions, both biblically and just sort of in the course of church history, where that hasn't been the case. That's an important idea. Then God did spend time pouring into... Now, during the years that Paul was in Arabia, who knows how he interacted with other believers? But what's important to his argument in Galatians is that he did not spend that time under the influence of the apostles. Paul wants to make it clear that he had true apostolic understanding of the gospel and biblical truth, but he didn't get it from the apostles. He got it from Jesus directly. Okay, let me go on here. Um, Victor says, do you believe disciples should evangelize and disciple others to have more Timothy's? Victor, I can answer that question with one word. Yes. We remember what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, isn't it? Where Paul says, Timothy, the things that you've received from me pass on to other faithful men who will pass them on to other people as well. This should be an important part of every Christian's walk. Whatever it is that God is pouring into me by good discipleship, I should look to pass it on to others, who in turn can pass it on to others. Yet, uh, one of the things I love about that passage in Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two, if I'm quoting it correctly, if I have the right verse citation. Sometimes I don't get the verse citations so clear in my mind. But if I'm thinking of it properly, uh, it's that verse talks about four different generations, so to speak. You have the generation of Paul, then you have the generation of Timothy. They need the generation of the one that Timothy, the faithful man that Timothy finds to pour into, and then the one that the faithful man pours into. So, just within that one verse, you have the span of four generations advancing Christian discipleship. And that's how it should be. Um, Okay, uh, Matthew. And also, was Paul married? Because that's a debate of many. Was Paul married? Okay. Uh, I think. He was. Now, did you hear how I phrase that? I think he was. I can't prove it, and I can't say that the scriptures expressly say it. But there's a couple indications from scripture that lead me to believe that Paul was married. Number one, Paul boasted that he was a righteous man according to the measurement of righteousness that was common in his day among his fellow Jews. Uh, where is that in Philippians, isn't it? Uh, maybe it's Galatians. Paul makes that boast. And in that day, even as it is today among more Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, it was unthinkable that a man could be righteous and unmarried. And Christianity is not like that. Christianity says Jesus wasn't married, but Paul became not married. But, but Paul says in his pre-Christian days, he was righteous according to all the measures of Jewish righteousness, and that would have included marriage. Jesus must have really stuck out in his own day as being undeniably a righteous man who nevertheless was not married. I think that was a unique thing. Jesus was very unique in his own day for that. Now, again, that establishes in the Christian world that um, uh, singleness or God-ordained celibacy has a much different place in the world of Christian development thought than it does in the world of Judaism. It's my understanding that biblical Hebrew doesn't even have a word for bachelor. The idea was just not even thought of. Okay, that's number one. And second reason why I think that Paul was married, even though I can't say with certainty, is in the book of Acts, when Paul gives his testimony before when the Roman rulers that he gave his testimony to, you know, Festus or Agrippa or one of them, I forget which one it was. He speaks about the early Christians before his conversion, and he says, I cast my vote against them. Now, when I read that, I ask myself, where would Paul have had a vote to cast against Christians? The only place I can think of is in the Sanhedrin and it's reasonable to suppose based on that and just general things that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin do we know for certain no but it's reasonable to suppose it and if Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin uh, he would have had to be married so what happened to Paul's wife well i would say either she died which is a distinct possibility or maybe she left him when he became a christian that's another or it could be a third unknown possibility but that, that is what I think. But again, we, we got to be careful not to be certain where the Bible doesn't tell us we can be certain. All right, I'm going to get to just a few more questions here. We're going on a little bit longer than we do because, you know, it's not the middle of the day for me. It's 8.43 at night here. So, okay, uh, a few more questions. Uh, agree with talking to God about people completely. My number one priority, God bless you, Joanne. Carlette says, Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives did Job know about Jesus? Um, Carla? yes. Job knew that there was a messianic redeemer. He knew the promise of the Messiah, at least in a shadowy form. And he did believe upon that. So, yeah, he, he knew Jesus, at least in that regard. Um, Lupe, you're welcome for answering your question. Um, Tyler, hi, David. You're live, rad. I'm trying to view Jesus more as a father in my life, but I have trouble with that due to bad fathering in my upbringing. How does God, Jesus model good father traits? You know, um, Tyler, I want to tell you something. Even though you may not have had a good father by experience, and many people don't, nobody has a perfect father by experience. I glance over to my daughter. She (laughs) glances back at me and chuckles. Nobody has a perfect father by experience, um, but many people don't even have a good father by experience. Yet, it seems interesting to me that almost everybody, I can't say everybody, but almost everybody has an intuitive understanding of what a good father uh, should be and is. And I think that that's something amazing. So you kind of intuitively know, and then... Just look at the nature of God, God being a perfect father. Um, now, again, he's God, so he's not a man, uh, but you can see the characteristics of a godly father, the faithfulness, the patience, the discipline, the love, the uh, the concern, all these things. You can see these things perfectly manifested in God, and uh, just kind of understand more and more that those kind of Father God gives us and gives us an intuitive, for the most part, understanding of who He is. Okay, I am going to end it here. Even though uh, T.C. Haley asks a question about the pre-tribulation rapture, which I'm dying to get to, but I just can't right now. And uh, Emma asks a question about uh, Christians addressing superstition. I will get to those to another time when I'm doing one of my recorded ones or a live one. And by the way, let me say this. I apologize for not being able to go live last Thursday. I'll tell you why I didn't go live, because I was on a plane coming over here to visit my daughter. And that's why I couldn't go live this last Thursday. But I'm going to leave it with this and sign off in just a moment. Thank you. Thank you to my subscribers. It's fun to see the subscriber count going up. I can't deny that's something I take a little bit of an interest in. Uh, it's great when you like the videos. Remember to click the thumbs up. These things give us a little bit more visibility. I don't know how the algorithms and rules work, but they say that more subscribers, more likes, more people who click for the notifications—it helps with the visibility of the videos. Uh, it's been an exciting year. This last year, I was just going over the analytics and compared to 2018, in 2019 we had more than a 700% increase in viewership and in views. And so, praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. Thank you especially to everybody who prays for the work of Enduring Word. My name is David Guzik. I have an online Bible commentary through the entire Bible. It's absolutely free, and you can find it at EnduringWord.com. There are many pastors, preachers, Bible teachers, and everyday Christians who use that Bible commentary to help them understand the Bible. I, I hear from more and more Christians who use my written commentary just as a part of their daily devotions. They'll read a text, pray through it, and then they'll just get a little insight from it from my comment. If that's helpful for you, I'm thrilled. But uh, my Bible resources are out there, absolutely free, and I'm very grateful to the people who donate and make it possible for me to give them away for free and in an increasing number of languages. God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, I'm so pleased that I could join you here from uh, the UK, uh, from England itself. And uh, God bless you. I'll join you hopefully again next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.